that he did not, in fact, have great faith. He, in fact, was nothing special. That Stephen, the man that laid down his life for the cause of Christ, had precisely the faith that we're all required when we call ourselves Christians. Father, those are powerful words to ponder. That when you called us to join in the suffering with you, when you called us to follow you, Lord, you invited us to hardship. Oftentimes we're told that becoming a Christian will make our life easy. But everything in this scripture tells us differently. Because if we believe what this book says, ultimately it leads to the cross, and the cross was a place of sorrow and pain. The difference is, is because of the sacrifice that you made on the cross, Lord Jesus, you relieve the sting from sin and the punishment that we were to bear. You substituted yourself for us, God. And so as we try to wrap our minds around that this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I prepare for sermons, I usually end up spending my entire Saturday in what my kids refer to as sermon world, where I I lock myself in a room and I pray, and and around the evening time I come out, and I've grown a beard, no, I'm just kidding, Uh, I come out and I've just... A lot of times I'm just kind of spent spiritually. And, and so last night, uh, my family and I, talking about what it looks like for us as Christians to suffer and to truly love God and to serve God, I, I hit kind of this mental block where I decided, all right, family, we're going to go get pizza. And so I took my family to get pizza, and I'm having a conversation with my wife a little bit about what I'm going to be preaching on today. And, and I talked about the concept that if we're truly being who God wants us to be, it should not surprise us when rough times hit, when hard times approach. And no sooner than we had finished that conversation, we were at Cranberry Township, we were sitting outside of a little pizza place at a little uh, table, and our car was right in front of us. There was maybe one other car in the parking lot. And as we finished that conversation, surely a young girl comes zipping around the corner and tries to park right next to my little Kia and crushes the side of it. We just kind of laughed a little bit and said, well, we must be doing something right. (laughs) And a lot of times we look at our lives and we have issues, we have hardships, we have things that hit us. And granted, they are hardships. I'm not happy about having to get my Kia fixed. But I could have exploded all over that little girl or I could have demonstrated Christ. And I hope I demonstrated Christ. I was pretty mad. But the reality is, is the problems that sometimes we, we receive, the problems that we have, that we pawn off as suffering and persecution aren't even in the same ballpark, to be honest. We, we know a reality in our country today that we are very blessed. And the reality that we know is one that's foreign to most of the world and most of the history of the world. Today we're going to talk about the theology of suffering. And we're going to talk about how, as, as we were invited to, to pursue a life with Christ, when Christ invited us to join in Him, He invited us to join Him in His sufferings in the cross. And I'm here to tell you right now, if people have told you becoming a Christian makes your life easy and gives you everything that you ever desired, they are teaching you a false theology. They are teaching you false doctrine. And, and following Jesus is not like that. 
Following Christ is difficult and hard. And when you challenge the enemy, he shows up and attacks. Before we get into the life of Stephen, I want to talk to you about trees and plants. I have a love of growing bonsai trees. I'm a nerd like that. I really enjoy uh, just seeing the tree, the little tree do its thing and and, and having a little, not control, but just being able to, to work with that. I really enjoy it. And so I remember one time hearing, as I, I listen a lot about plants and stuff, I, I remember one time hearing in a biology class back in high school, so teachers, the students do listen. I remember hearing that there's a certain type of forest that, and certain type of plant that only time the seeds will germinate, the only time that the seeds will actually grow is when they are hit with flame. And so I started to read up a little bit about this and discovered that that is actually true, that there are fi- fire flowers and different types of sagebrush that unless they're hit with a fire, they will not continue to grow or drop their seeds and the seeds won't even grow. As I was reading, I came across something that floored me, that the giant sequoia forests, in fact, back in the 1970s, the, you know, we look at Smokey the Bear as this great thing where Smokey the Bear prevents forest fires. Well, let me tell you something. The great sequoia forests look at uh, Smokey the Bear as a terrorist. You can laugh at that. It was funny. Because what happens is, is Smokey the Bear tells everybody forest fires are bad. But the reality of it is, in order for the giant sequoia forests to, to, to produce and to grow and to thrive, they must come under fire. That there's certain types of little trees that will squelch out and, and certain types of diseases that will enter if this fire doesn't happen. I heard this and I was perplexed and so I went to the national the United States webpage for national parks and, and tried to look this up and, and I found this amazing truth about these types of forests. See, we think that the fire for a forest is, is, is death. We think that, that this is all bad. And, and so what they actually discovered by, by uh, years and years of research with these giant forests is by them stopping the forest fires, by them preventing that, they were actually causing the strongest, largest trees in our country to almost become extinct. On their website, it says that they did some research, and what, and, uh, what they did is they discovered that fire, uh, what fire does for the giant sequoia in the mixed conifer forest, it serves seven key functions uh, of significance. One, the fire prepares seed beds. It replenishes the nutrients in the soil. Three, it sets back uh, its succession in a certainly relatively small area, so it clears the areas. Four, it provides conditions which favor wildlife and help produce fruit. Hmm. Five, fire or rough times in the forest provides a mosaic of ages, of age classes and vegetation types. Sometimes the rough times allow certain trees to grow to a longer age while allowing younger trees to thrive and to spur off of what they leave behind. It's important, they say, to have every age, to have every generation in a forest. Third, or excuse me, sixth, it reduces the number of trees susceptible to attack or disease. And then the last one floored me. 
that when a forest goes through a forest fire, this type of forest, it causes it to have a reduced probability of fire hazards. So the fire, the tough time in the forest, helps fight fires more than us just trying to stamp them out. Isn't that interesting? These giant, massive sequoia trees. Well, today we turn to the scripture, and we're going to start all the way back in Acts 6. And over the past couple of weeks, as we've been talking in our sermon series, The Gospel in Action, we've been talking about from the time that Jesus was crucified, there's this group of guys, the Pharisees, and all that they're trying to do is they're trying to stamp out this fire. Do you know what happens when you try to stamp out a fire and it's really blazing and it's, and it's really hot? It just kind of goes everywhere, right? You ever seen that happen? And so we've got these Pharisees, Caiaphas and his fellows, that are, they, they, they thought they killed Jesus. They tried to get John and Peter when they raised the man up from being crippled his entire life. At this point in the game, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they're growing increasingly frustrated with this whole Jesus character and the movement that he started. Oh, look at me, I raised from the dead, they say. Oh, look at these disciples, they're going to come with authority and power. We've got to stop this. These guys are threatening our lifestyle. They're threatening our traditions. And so there's this anger and there's this hatred that's breeding. The disciples are sharing their faith. They're sharing the story of Jesus. And thousands and thousands of people are converting to Christ. It's said in this passage of scripture that even priests are now accepting Jesus. They're accepting Christ. And of course, when a church starts, what is soon to follow? Problems. What happens is in this very early church, some issues begin to arise. One group of people thinks they're getting treated differently than another group of people. And so what we see here in chapter 6 is the disciples choose seven guys to go out and and to begin what I look at as like little ministries. You know, maybe one guy's handling the children's ministry. Maybe one guy's handling the men's ministry. Maybe one's handling the feud distribution ministry or whatever you want to call it. And so in this moment, we have seven people being chosen by the disciples to go out and do ministry. One of them is a guy named Stephen. He's chosen because it's very clear he loves the Lord. And he goes out and he begins to minister in the name of God. And so people are converting to Christ. He's helping to soothe the issues. And Stephen is doing his things. The Bible tells us in 6 that miraculous things are happening. And and people are taking notice of this guy, Stephen. And so what's happened in this time period, the moment that anybody begins to do something that steals glory from the Pharisees and begins to point it towards God, is the Pharisees go to their little games of finding on their speed dial, on their cell phone, these guys that they get to call false witness against somebody. Here we find ourselves with Stephen being seized. The Bible says he was a man full of God's grace and power, and the things that he did were through the Holy Spirit, not through his own. And so what happens is the Pharisees stirred up some trouble. They got men to bring false testimony and false witness against Stephen. Does this sound like a familiar story? They did this to John and to Peter. They did this to Jesus. Maybe they should start realizing this trick don't work. So they brought false testimony against Stephen. They said that he was saying that Moses was the bad guy and that God was going to destroy the temple and he was preaching blasphemies. And it says at the very end of this that 
all that were sitting there looked at Stephen and his face shine like an angel. Do you know where else we see that very phrase made? When Moses is encountering God. The verbiage that's used there is for somebody who is in the presence of God. The Pharisees at this stage in the game are angry. They're frustrated. They, they bring him before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas asks the same question. He says to them, are these charges true? And like Jesus, and like John, and like Peter, he does something amazing. He totally doesn't even answer their question. Because instead of being worried about himself, he points to God. And what Stephen is about to do is amazing. He was simply being obedient to Christ. He was following God. And he knows that regardless, God will protect him. God will save him. God will guide him. And so instead of sitting there going, guys, I didn't do that, and defending himself, instead of doing that, he takes the moment, he seizes it, and he preaches an incredible sermon. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you want a quick summary of the Old Testament, read Acts 7. Because Stephen is about to unleash an explanation of Israel unlike anything anybody ever heard. He starts his sermon out by declaring with, with truth and factual statement by, by um, quoting scripture. He goes out and he starts talking about Abraham and the covenants. And he goes and talks about Jacob and Isaac and he talks about the sons. He continues on in this story to talk about how God had made promises to Israel. And Israel constantly would get cold feet or would constantly become afraid and they would start acting on their own instead of waiting on God. He basically told the story through Israel's history of how God blessed them and they refused to see the blessings before them. He went on to talk about Moses and how God would deliver them. He would go on to talk about how even on Mount Sinai, when God himself revealed to the people the Ten Commandments, Moses would come down off. And the Israelites had made other gods for themselves to worship. Stephen is going on and on and on and pointing out the fact that God is blessing you all along. You reject what God offers to you. And then you ask the question, where is God? This is what Stephen is preaching to a group of Pharisees that have already had it with this whole Jesus movement. He lays a very convincing argument because everything that he said is backed up by Scripture. Stephen knew his Scripture. He knew what he was talking about. The Pharisees were angry. And in verse 51 upon reminding them of how their fathers rejected God constantly, Stephen puts this whipped cream on the end of this sermon. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. 
I don't know if you get the significance of this. He took their heritage. He took their family. He said all along, all of history has been leading up to Jesus. And every time someone prophesied about Jesus, you would persecute them. You would kill them. And when Jesus himself showed up, you as a people persecuted and killed him. When are you going to wake up and realize that the blessing you're asking for is Jesus? It says in the scriptures that in this moment that, that they were whipped into an anger, into a frenzy, that, that Stephen, when he, when he said these things, they threw their hands over their ears as if the very words that he was speaking would condemn their souls to hell as blasphemy. Stephen had hit such a sensitive spot that they drug him out of town. It says that the people, the, the Pharisees were screaming at the top of their lungs. Think about what it would look like if you said something to Pastor Barry and I, and we throw our hands over ears and go, Aah! I truly believe in my heart of hearts that this was a demonic moment. That these people were possessed by evil. But this was a moment ordained by God. That this was a moment that had to happen. This moment other than Jesus Christ, is said to be the most significant moment in the history of Christianity. Because in this moment, we have a theology revealed to us that is very different than what a lot of preachers and a lot of theologies will teach you. In this moment, we're showed that for some of us, it is God's will for us to suffer. We're shown in this moment that when we follow Christ, to be truly intimate with Christ and to get to know Christ, we have to, to participate in his sufferings. That's a hard concept to understand because we would love to see this story end with Stephen going off and all the Pharisees hit their knees and repent, but that's not what happens. Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, looks to heaven and he says, when he heard, the, excuse me, when they heard this, um, when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. After this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Wait a second. I thought my life was supposed to be easier. I thought my life was supposed to be cookies and cream when I started following Jesus. You're telling me that it may be God's will for me to be stoned to death? When I was a little kid, I had this image of stoning as something where people took little hands of rocks and hit you with it. In 2007, I had the unfortunate pleasure of going to a place in Africa called Dandora. The Dandora slums are said to be one of the most populated places on the face of the earth. 300,000 people for every one square mile of land. Fathom that. That's the entire population of the greater Pittsburgh area living in Heinz Field. It was the most horrendous thing I'd ever seen. There was a I remember walking and, and there was just this angry crowd and, and to, to, to our side there was, there was this pillar of boulders and I'm talking things that you just did two-handed to heave. And I remember asking somebody, what happened? 
Well, a 13-year-old boy was accused of stealing somebody's radio. And in the frenzy and all the fighting that ensued, they stoned him. And the reality of what stoning was to me hit me. That under this heap of boulders was a life. After they had burned the pile of stones. And I'm going to tell you something. And I'm going to stop sharing details for the sake of the kids. The reality in the end that Stephen faced was horrible. And the reality of following Christ sometimes is painful. Some of you in your lives, you may be struggling with cancers or alcoholism or something. You know what I'm talking about. And you're trying to follow Christ and you're trying to follow Christ and it's hard because you're constantly under attack. You're doing something right. Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, called these guys out and they killed him. There was a young man by the name of Saul standing there approving of his death. And this is the kicker for me. Because while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed out loud, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had heard, when he had said this, he fell asleep. A lot of folks have said that when Stephen cried out before the first stone hit him. God put him to sleep. And all the pain of the stones hit Jesus instead. Stephen cried out in a moment where he was being murdered like Christ. He committed himself to the Lord and he asked for forgiveness for the people that were murdering him. How's your bad day? He died. And the reality of Christianity sets in in this moment. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin thought they had snuffed out this Jesus movement. We killed Stephen. They're going to shut up about this. But it has a very different effect. Because you see, in order for the, the word of God to thrive, we have to have a dependency on him. We have to have an understanding that God will provide for us. Jesus on the cross was completely dependent on God. When, when Peter and John and all the disciples were doing their miraculous things, they were dependent on God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, church, as a church, we have issues. And I'm, I'm, I'm saddened to say they're not the issues we should have. Because if we're pursuing God and we're following His will, the issues that we face should be very, very different. We should be facing more persecution if we believe what the great commandment says, if we believe what, 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 God, what Christ says to all of us, we should be facing persecution on a very different level. The style of worship that we attend should not be the focus of our issues. We should be evangelizing in such a way that if the United States government tells us it's wrong to follow Jesus, it shouldn't matter to us. We should be experiencing persecutions like China. I heard someone joke around earlier with me and say that the greatest evangelist that may have lived in our time could very well have been Mao. Because through his persecution, China is on fire for the Lord. You know why that is? 
It's because in our persecution, in our true suffering, when we're really going through pain, we are depending on God in an intimate way that cannot be matched in any other thing. Because when you suffer for the Lord, when you suffer for God, you are joining in the suffering on the cross. And you are becoming more like Christ than when we're comfortable. You look at the greatest times of our American heritage. They have always been times when we as a nation have been suffering, when we have been dependent on God through the 20s and the 40s. The times where our nation has gone immoral and begun to fail are the times when we thought we had it good. It's the times when we stopped depending on God. The reality is, and I'm going to say this and it's bold as Americans, we need to repent of our abundance. We need to repent of our comfort and we need to start doing things that put us out there. We need to be standing for truth. We need to be the voice for those who have no voice. We need to care more about the homeless and those who have nothing and stop worrying about being a people pleaser. When we take bold steps for Christ, church, listen to me, problems are going to happen. When you sit around idle, problems are going to happen. But I'm telling you this right now, when you suffer for the Lord, he takes the sting out of death. He takes the sting out of pain, and he makes those problems bearable. And the reality of it is, if we believe in the Jesus we say that we believe, we will understand that it is through our suffering, it is through our pain, that the forest will grow strong. Church, what stops us from sharing our faith? I'm sad to say for me, oftentimes, it's little things of inconvenience. And that's not good. Because when I signed up to follow Jesus, I said that I would follow him to death. Just don't wake me up before eight. And the reality of it is, he's calling each one of you to something. Maybe to suffer. In America today, we think the way to deal with pain is to get medicated. And, and hear me, I'm not saying medication's bad and I'm not saying therapy's bad, but we try to medicate ourselves and we try to therapy ourselves to the point where we don't experience pain. Listen to me, pain is needed in this process. When the church of Uganda was suffering persecution, the bishop there said, it is through blood that we see God revealed. And I just, I can't help but to think we have the wrong problems that we face. We, we deal with the wrong issues and we get worried about the wrong things. You know, we've got a whole bunch of church issues to work out, but the reality of it is, that's not really a, that bad of a deal. I, I would love for us to be having such an impact on the community that the government tells us we have to stop or something like that, that we're making such a difference that, that we become a nuisance in the sight of evil. When we accepted the challenge to follow Christ, we accepted the challenge to die with him. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Paul and C.S. Lewis and so many others have, have stated that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Are you willing to do that? Are we as a church willing to really experience problems? Because when we care for the fatherless and the brokenhearted, the walls may get chipped. When we feed the hungry, the kitchen's going to get messy. 
Do you realize we are in this business of church to go broke? We're being asked by God to give everything, to leave it all, to spend it all for him. That's a challenge. I went through a hard time last year. I lost a very important person to me in my life. And I remember I was struggling more just having questions of God. And a friend of mine gave me this scripture verse found in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. In our weaknesses, in the moments where we don't think we can carry on, I'm assuring you, some of you may die. Some of you may be called to be sick forever. But do you know what happens at the end of the story of Stephen? Stephen's dead. The Pharisees go up to the fire and they try to stamp the fire out, but the word of God tells us in Acts 8 that that people scattered The Christians scattered. And it doesn't use the word for flee when referring to scattered. It uses a word that that is called diaspora, which actually means it's scattered like it was scattering seeds. And so what the Pharisees meant for evil, God took, and it says thousands and thousands of people were converted to Christianity, and more priests began to believe in Jesus. So through the death of Stephen, the church set ablaze. The church went out and became on fire. And everywhere that people went, they shared the news of Jesus. They shared the news of what was going on. And the church grew out of control. Did you ever stop to think that maybe in our hard times, in our hardships, the things that you are going through personally, that maybe God has called you to suffer through cancer and die? And that's so easy for me to stand here and say, but maybe God has called you to that. But the reality is, he will use that to change somebody's forever. I talked to a man who, after the service, told me that he was given stage four cancer and and he just figured, okay, God, I'm going to take this. And he began to evangelize the people in the cancer ward. He was prepared to die and he just wanted to share the gospel. And the reality is, is, is he's actually doing quite well today. But through his suffering, God changed his life and led people to Christ. Do you want to lead people to Christ? I want to hear you. Do you want to lead people to Christ, Christ Church? Do you want to lead people to Christ? Then embrace the suffering. Because when you embrace the suffering of the cross, you embrace Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you. I don't like pain, Lord. Help us to embrace it. Help us to accept it. Help us to understand that there is a theology of suffering and pain. And Lord, when we become weak and we start calling things suffering or or persecution that really aren't, God, I pray that you would give us thicker skin. I thank you for our first world problems that we have, God. that, That, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be convicted of our comfort. Help us to repent of our luxury. That there's nothing wrong with having these things, but when we put them before you, God... They get into the, in the way. All the abundance that we have today can be our biggest hindrance from drawing close to you, God. 
I pray that we would have persecuted weeks this week where we have to depend on you. Draw us closer to you as individuals and as a church, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.